the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of God. His pages burn with the truth eternal and they glow with the light of God's holy word stands today as the only infallible, inerrant guide for a confused and decaying world. On this program, it is clearly presented to you in language related to the troublesome questions and problems of our times. Its answers have the integrity and authority of God's everlasting truth. You'll enjoy its candor and clarity as presented now by our Bible expositor, Wayne Carver. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. It's so good to welcome you to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I look forward to this time we spend together around the Word of God. We're continuing our study of God's Panorama of the Ages as it's found in the third chapter of 2 Peter. Let's open this sixth message of the series by reading 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. In verses 8 and 9, Peter directs his attention to the prime question of the last day scoffers. And in so doing, he assures both scoffers and believers alike that the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is an absolute certainty. In fact, this event is far more certain than death and taxes. It's more certain than the rising of the sun tomorrow morning. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter assures Christians, and in so doing, he also assures last-day scoffers that God does not reckon the passage of time as man does. That is, what seems to be a very long time to man is just a short time to God. The Lord has not forgotten his promise to come again to establish the kingdom of God upon the earth. This literal promise is to be kept. But there is a reason for the long delay. That reason is God's great love for the people of this world, for whom he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ brings with it a judgment on the earth dwellers who remain in their sins in spite of God's provision of a Savior. The Lord hesitates in his coming because he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But because the Lord delays his coming does not mean that it in any way is less certain. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness. 
The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. What does the Apostle Peter mean by this statement of verse 8? Many have taken this verse out of context, and they've come to some very unscriptural interpretations. This verse has been used to teach that time periods in Scripture are never to be taken literally, especially when they relate to prehistoric or prophetic events, because God has told us that a thousand years sometimes refers to one day, and one day sometimes refers to a thousand years. This verse has been used especially to teach that the creation days of Genesis chapter 1 were actually much longer periods of time. But is this a fair treatment of the verse? First, notice what the verse says, and then notice what it does not say. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 says, One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. It does not say one day to the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. This verse does not equate a thousand years to one day and vice versa. This verse includes the little word as twice and this word places the statement in the form of a simile or a metaphor, not a statement of mathematical fact. God knows the difference between one day, which technically is one rotation of the earth on its axis, and a thousand years, which technically is one thousand orbits of the earth about the sun. Nowhere in Scripture, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 included, are these two periods equated. And certainly 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 does not modify the literal sense in which we're supposed to understand the creation days of Genesis chapter 1. God gave us a definition of the word day there in the creation account the first time that he used it. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God had divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. God tells us definitely that the word day, as it's used in the creation account, refers to a period of darkness followed by a period of light. The rotation of the earth on its axis is the only phenomenon of the earth's mechanics of which we are aware that results in regular sequential periods of darkness and light. The creation days, those six days that began with God's dividing the light from the darkness, that is, God's starting of the earth's rotating motion, definitely refer to six sequential rotations of this planet on its own axis. The account is to be taken literally in its plain, ordinary sense. But what is the meaning of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8? To really understand, we can't pull this verse out of context and try to interpret it without reference to the verses that come before and after it. What is Peter's theme in this passage? Remember the mocking question asked by the last day scoffers was, where is the promise of his coming? Then they go on to state their doctrine of uniformity in the words, For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. The inference is that it's been an awfully long time since the promise was made, and since it has not yet been fulfilled, then the promise should only be considered as a myth, and it should be forgotten. It's a 
It's as a refutation to this idea that Peter says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter simply says to the last-day scoffers, just because that what men consider to be a very long time period has gone past does not detract in any way from the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ made the promise that he would come again, and that promise is going to be fulfilled. God does not reckon the passage of time as long or short as do men of this world. What seems to be a very long period of time in man's sight is just a short period of time to God. The reason that the Lord has not yet fulfilled his promise is because he loves the men for whom he died, and he is reluctant that any of them should perish. His second coming will bring an end to the opportunity for repentance for a great multitude, and they will perish. For this reason, the Lord is patient toward men of this world, and he delays his coming. But delay does not mean that the promise is any less sure. But this is not all the information that the Holy Spirit has given us in this verse. There's not a single meaningless word included in the sacred writings. Every word has its purpose, and therefore every word in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 has meaning and also conveys information to the reader. It's not accidental that 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 mentions the time period of a thousand years twice and the time period of one day twice. Had it been the Holy Spirit's intent simply to convey the idea that what seems to be a very long time to man is only a short time to God, he could have simply said, one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and he could have stopped there. Granted, his adding, and a thousand years as one day, adds emphasis, but that does not seem to be sufficient cause to justify these added words. No, God's Holy Spirit intends to supply far more information with this verse than simply the emphasized contrast between God's and man's view of the passage of time. In speaking of man's view of time, this passage mentions two periods of a thousand years each, and in speaking of God's view of time, it mentions two periods of one day. The periods of time mentioned, from man's viewpoint, should immediately convey a very significant fact to us. Remember, Peter's prophecy is a prophecy of what is to happen in the last days, that is, very near the end of this age of grace. So the aspect of man's viewing the passage of time since the Lord's first advent is from the standpoint of the end of the age. And man sees that not tens or hundreds of years have gone by, but rather thousands of years have expired. Through the pen of Peter, writing in the latter part of the first century A.D., the Holy Spirit has told God's people that a period of time which man will measure in thousands of years will go by before the Lord's return. And beyond this, the passage of Scripture specifically mentions the time period of 1,000 years two times. There's precedent in Scripture for interpreting time prophecies by the summation of the time periods mentioned. Therefore, there seems to be very good reason to conclude that the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ will come approximately, not exactly, I'm not setting days or years, will come approximately 2,000 years after his first advent. 
We're living in a time that is considerably more than 1,900 years after the Lord's first advent, and there is significant evidence that we are definitely in the time period that Peter referred to as the last days. But this is not all that's contained in the passage of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. From God's view, two periods of one day are also mentioned. Now, does this have significance to our interpretation of this verse? I think that it definitely does. But my time is almost gone for today. We'll take a look at the passage of Scripture in the Old Testament, a little passage of Scripture in the book of Hosea, as we continue our study of God's panorama of the ages on the next broadcast. Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. We're still involved in our study of God's great panorama of the ages as it's recorded in the third chapter of 2 Peter. We've come to the remarkable prophecy for this age that's contained in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. I think that in order to completely understand the meaning of the time prophecy that's given in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, we have to go to the parallel prophecies that are contained in the Old Testament book of Hosea. This little book records a number of very specific prophecies concerning the state of God's chosen people during this inter-advent age of the church. It has often been said that the Old Testament prophets were not given a view of this inter-advent age in which we live, that their prophecies covered the time that expired at the first coming of our Lord, and then they leap forward to the day of the Lord, which begins just seven years before the Lord returns in power and glory. This is true as far as it relates to God's purpose for building the church in this age. However, the fact that this inter-advent age would come to pass and the way that it would relate to God's chosen people Israel is contained in the Old Testament. Let's open today's message by reading Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return, and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. As Hosea wrote these words, he provided a remarkable picture of the children of Israel as they were from the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 up until they were once again permitted to establish a nation in the land of Palestine in A.D. 1948. In fact, the picture still applies, but in our day, we can see steps being taken to correct some of these deficiencies. This inter-advent age is the only time in Israel's history when the picture drawn by Hosea fits exactly. On the last broadcast, we were looking specifically at 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 where the apostle writes, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now in this verse, it's obvious that Peter is answering the objection of the last day scoffers who say, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation by pointing out that God does not reckon time as men do. What seems to be a very long period of time to men is only a short period of time in God's view, 
And the fact that there is a delay which is measured in thousands of years by men does not in one whit lessen the surety that the Lord's promise will be kept. But I think that the verse goes farther than this. I believe we have a time prophecy here that tells us the approximate, not exact, the approximate length of this inter-advent age. From man's viewpoint, two periods of 1,000 years are mentioned in this verse, and since there is a great deal of precedent in Scripture for interpretation of time prophecy passages by taking a summation of all the periods mentioned, I think that we're justified in believing that about 2,000 years are to expire between the Lord's first and second comings. These 2,000-year periods, as time is seen in man's sight, are also compared to two one-day periods as seen in God's sight. I believe that this fact is definitely what brings us to understand that the inter-advent age of grace will have an approximate length of 2,000 years. I believe that Peter has given us the key to, unlock, to unlock the prophecy found in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 2. The paragraph that includes Hosea chapter 6 and verse 2 actually begins in Hosea chapter 5 and verse 15. In this opening verse, we hear the voice of the pre-incarnate Christ speaking from the perspective of the time when he, after visiting his people in the flesh as their Messiah, is rejected by them. That is, this statement prophesies the end of his first advent. He says, I will go and return to my place till they, Israel, acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction they will seek me early. And then we hear the voice of the remnant of the children of Israel as they at last do enter their affliction and acknowledge their rejected Messiah in the early part of the day of the Lord. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Peter said, One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Let's apply Peter's formula to Hosea chapter 6 and verse 2. After two thousand years will he revive us. In the third thousand years he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. The two days apply to this inner advent period and the third day applies to the millennial age. As he continues in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, Peter is speaking not only to the last day scoffers who have made fun of the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, but also to Christian believers in these last days of this age of grace. He writes, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter tells us that the Lord is not just procrastinating when he delays his return. Even though a period of almost 2,000 years has passed since the Lord Jesus Christ ascended back to heaven, and the two angels that stood by the disciples there on the Mount of Olives said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. This does not mean that the promise has been forgotten. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. The fact of the Lord's return is as sure as it was the day that the promise was made. 
It's far surer than is the rising of the sun tomorrow morning. There's a reason for this long delay. He is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord is reluctant to bring this age to an end because so doing will result in the eternal separation from God of multitudes of those for whom he died on that cross at Calvary. The Lord desires to provide every possible opportunity to those living in these last days of this age of grace. He wants to save lost men and women. He stands ready to do so to all those who do come to repentance. The word repentance just means a change of mind or a change of attitude. Men and women must realize that by natural estate they are lost sinners. They must realize that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and that all are included when God says, There is none righteous, no, not one. They must understand the truth of the statement written by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Another great truth must also be brought home to lost men and women. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But the remedy is so simple that most people of the world will not, just not believe what the gospel says, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. The Lord delays his coming because he is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If I'm speaking to an unsaved man, woman, teenager, or youngster, let me point out that you are one of the reasons for the Lord's delay. But the delay will not last forever. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Peter does not deal with the details of the day of the Lord here in this passage of Scripture. In verse 10, he simply tells us, But the day of the Lord, which is to mark the end of this age, will come as a thief in the night. Peter knows that the subject of the day of the Lord has been treated in considerable detail by the Old Testament prophets and by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13 through chapter 5 and verse 11. It's not his purpose to dwell on the details of this time, but simply to place in its correct time relationship to this age, that is simply to replace it in its correct relationship to this age and to the eternal age of God that is to follow the day of the Lord. The Old Testament prophets, writing many years before the birth of our Lord, gave us the sequence of events that make up the period that God himself designates as the day of the Lord. It begins with a period of great spiritual darkness and great tribulation on this earth. There is a seven-year period in which the fully developed political and religious system of Satan himself will hold sway over the earth. It's the 70th week of Daniel and the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation period. But at the end of the seven-year period, the Lord himself will descend bodily from heaven with an army of both angelic beings and the resurrected saved ones from this age of grace, and he will bring an end to Satan's world system. 
The millennial day will dawn with this coming of the Son of Righteousness, and for a thousand years the Lord Jesus Christ will rule as King over the earth. But after the thousand years are expired, the day of the Lord must come to an end. After announcing that the day of the Lord is to most certainly come as a thief in the night, Peter leaps forward to the events that are to mark the end of the day of the Lord. He says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. I see that once again my time is almost gone. We'll continue with our study of God's panorama of the ages on the next broadcast. Thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's so good to greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Let's continue with our study of God's panorama of the ages by reading 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. The age that's to follow this present church age is known in Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, as the day of the Lord. Peter doesn't deal with the details of the day of the Lord here in this passage of Scripture. He simply tells us, But the day of the Lord, which is to mark the end of this age, will come as a thief in the night, Peter knows that the subject of the day of the Lord has been treated in considerable detail by the Old Testament prophets and by the Apostle Paul in his first epistle to the Thessalonians. It's not his purpose to dwell on the details of this time, but simply to place it in its correct time relationship to this age and to the eternal age of God that is to follow the day of the Lord. The Apostle Paul gives us a description of the end of the church age and the beginning of the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13 through chapter 5 and verse 11. In the first part of this passage, Paul tells us of the catching away or the rapture of the church when the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Then, in the second part of the passage, Paul tells of the coming of the day of the Lord like a thief in the night to those who remain behind in this world after the church is gone. The Old Testament prophets, writing many years before the birth of our Lord, gave us the sequence of events that make up the period that God himself designates as the day of the Lord. It begins with a period of great spiritual darkness and great tribulation in the earth. There's a seven-year period in which the fully developed political and religious system of Satan himself will hold sway over the earth. It's the 70th week of Daniel, the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation period. But at the end of that seven-year period, the Lord himself will descend bodily from heaven with an army of both angelic beings and the resurrected saved ones from this age of grace, and he will bring an end to Satan's world system. The millennial day will dawn with this coming of the Son of Righteousness, and for 1,000 years the Lord Jesus Christ will rule as king over the earth. But after the thousand years are expired, 
the day of the Lord must come to an end. However, it's not Peter's purpose to dwell on the events on earth that mark the end of the day of the Lord. Rather, he turns his attention to God's destruction of this present world by fire after it has served its purpose. After announcing that the day of the Lord is to most certainly come as a thief in the night, Peter leaps forward to the events that are to mark the end of the day of the Lord. He says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Peter is the only one of the sacred writers to whom it was given to write the details of the atomic disintegration of this present planet after it has served God's purposes. This world must be removed in order to make way for the new heaven and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. This nuclear disintegration of our present world, the destruction by fire, is not a judgment of men because no men will be present on the earth at that time. The destruction of this present world is a parallel event to the great white throne judgment of God on the wicked dead of all ages that's described in Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15. This is what we're told in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 where we read, But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against or in parallel with the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So while the events that mark the great white throne, judgment, and perdition of ungodly men are transpiring somewhere in the second heaven, this present earth is undergoing nuclear disintegration preparatory for the creation and making of the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. It's with these words that the Apostle Peter concludes the great panorama of the ages which began with the introductory prophecy of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse It's with these words that the Apostle Peter concludes the great panorama of the ages which began with the introductory prophecy of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3. Peter has first assured last-day scoffers and Christians alike that in spite of a delay which is measured in thousands of years, the Lord has not forgotten his promise to come again and that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. With this positive statement, the apostle simply introduces the fact of the coming of this time period which was so well known to the Old Testament prophets. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, we read of the great white throne judgment where God gathers all of the resurrected, unsaved dead from all ages to pass final sentence upon them before they are cast into the lake of fire. This judgment does not take place on the earth or in the third heaven, which according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, is the immediate abode of God. Rather, it seems to take place somewhere in space. However, Peter tells us that it is in parallel with 
this judgment of the wicked dead that this earth and its atmospheric heaven will undergo nuclear disintegration in preparation for the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. There seems to be no doubt that Peter is speaking of a nuclear disintegration of this present earth with its atmospheric heaven. The words he uses are quite technical and quite descriptive of just such a phenomenon. And in light of the facts that have been uncovered in 20th century nuclear physics, we should be able to have a clear understanding of what Peter is trying to describe to us. Since the work of Dr. Albert Einstein in the early part of this century, we now know that what we think of as material or matter is really just tremendous concentrations of energy in a special form. This energy is quantized into the atomic building blocks that we call protons, neutrons, and electrons. If these building blocks are locked together to form the atomic structure, then they exhibit the properties of matter. However, if they are free from the atomic structure and operate as free agents, then they exhibit the properties of energy such as heat and light. The nucleus of the atom is the structure that acts as the interface between matter and energy. This structure is basically unstable, but it is made to exist by a mysterious force that nuclear physicists have named the nuclear binding force. The existence of this force that has properties which go beyond the natural is unexplainable by the nuclear physicist. However, our Bible does explain the source of this force. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17 says, By him all things hold together. According to Peter's description, when this present world has served its purpose, the Lord is going to release the nuclear binding forces. This entire earth will then become one blinding flash of heat, light, and noise. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Peter continues his letter with the question that's found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. This is the question that the Apostle Peter directs to all Christians down through the age. However, it's especially directed to Christians who are living in what Peter has previously designated as the last days of this age of grace. In response to the prophesied question of the scoffers of the last days, the Apostle Peter has given us a broad panorama of the ages of this earth beginning with the creation and continuing on down through the coming of the day of the Lord, that time which designates the end of this present age. Then the apostle Peter turns to the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Christians to whom this epistle is addressed, to those who know by faith that the Lord is going to keep his promise and that he is to bodily return to this earth to bring an end to the present world system. Then he asks a question that should strike to the hearts of every one of us. Now that you see that all of these material things of this world are not to endure, but they are to be totally disintegrated before the beginning of the eternal day of God, what kind of person should you be in the light of this knowledge? Shouldn't you be constantly in holy conduct and behavior, living in a godly way as you look forward to and eagerly rush toward the coming of the day of God when you are to live eternally in his presence? You should not put your trust in and, your, and direct your desires toward the material things of this world as do the scoffers of the last days who have no eternal hope. Remember, they are the materialists. They have put their trust in the false doctrine of uniformity, a doctrine that is based entirely on the concept of the eternity of material things. 
They have willingly rejected the plain teachings of the Word of God, and they have elected to place their faith in the idea that, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. But you who believe the Word of God should not be materialists. You should know, or rather you know, that all material things, and that includes the earth and all the works that are in it, are going to be burned up before God presents to us our eternal inheritance, which is the new heaven and the new earth. Beloved, this question of Peter's is directed to us. We should know the answer to it. There's only one scriptural answer, and that answer is that we should be looking beyond the material things of this present world toward the eternal things of God. I see that my time is almost gone. We'll continue tomorrow with exactly where we left off today. Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's so good to once again visit with you by radio with another message from God's Word. Let's continue with our study of Panorama of the Ages by reading 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. This passage of Scripture is in the form of a question. It's a question that the Apostle Peter directs to all Christians down through the age, but it's especially directed to Christians who are living in what Peter has previously designated as the last days of this age of grace. In response to the prophesied question of the scoffers of the last days, the Apostle Peter has given us a broad panorama of the ages of this earth, beginning with the creation and continuing on down through the coming of the day of the Lord, which designates the end of this present age. And now he focuses on the event that ends the day of the Lord and that initiates the eternal day of God. That event is the total nuclear disintegration of the present earth along with its atmospheric heaven after it has served God's purpose. Peter has pointed out that the nuclear binding forces, which are administered directly by the Lord Jesus Christ, who Scripture tells us is holding all things together in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17, are to be withdrawn at the time of the great white throne judgment. With the withdrawal of these forces, the phenomenon that we call matter or material can no longer exist and everything associated with this present earth will become one blinding flash of pure energy. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Then the apostle Peter turns to the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Christians to whom this epistle is addressed, to those who know by faith that the Lord is going to keep his promise and bodily return to this earth to bring an end to the present world system. And he asks a question that should strike to the hearts of every one of us. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Beloved, this question is directed to us. We should know the answer to it. 
There's only one scriptural answer, and that answer is that we should be looking beyond the material things of this present world toward the eternal things of God. But a great many Christians of our day seem to have lost sight of this principle. God's people seem to spend much of their time and energy today in trying to get ahead in the world, that is, storing up treasures on earth, that they have little time left to expend on their prime reason for being, which is serving the Lord Jesus Christ in carrying out his great commission. I have in my hand a little tract called Our Reason for Being. It was written by William MacDonald, and it was published by Christian Missions Press in Waynesboro, Georgia. I'd like to read a short quotation from this tract. Christian, you should remember this. The great goal of your life is to glorify God and to represent his interests on earth. Everything else is incidental. Christians have bigger business than to give their best to the unworthy world. We're born to soar on eagle's wings, not to crawl in the muck. The believer has one great occupation, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. The only possible justification for a job or a profession is to meet daily needs and to be able to give everything above that to the work of the Lord. The Apostle Peter now turns his attention to those things that are eternal as he reminds the children of God of the things that our Heavenly Father has promised. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. This is the expectation of the child of God, the one who has believed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has confessed himself as a lost sinner, unable to do anything for himself, but then has put his trust in the finished work of the cross of Calvary and has asked the Lord Jesus Christ to save him. That one can be fully assured that even though this present heaven and earth are to be dissolved, God has promised a new heaven and a new earth not polluted with sin and not subject to the curse of death as his eternal heritage. The Apostle Peter is not the first of the inspired writers of Scripture to tell us of God's promise to create a new heaven and a new earth. The prophet Isaiah, writing about 700 years before Peter penned this second epistle, had recorded the words of God as they're found in Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. The wickedness and pollution and filth of this present earth are to be totally annihilated as the present heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And in the perfection and righteousness of the new heaven and new earth that God will integrate from the basic energy of this present system, the wickedness and heartaches and imperfections of this present earth shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Twenty-five years after Peter penned his prophecy of the new heaven and the new earth, the aged Apostle John was actually permitted to see the new heaven and the new earth brought into existence by a prophetic vision given through the omnipotent power of God. And in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1, John tells us of this marvelous sight. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. What a marvelous sight that must have been to this aged disciple whom Jesus loved. John doesn't give us a detailed description of the new earth, but he does point to the rather amazing fact that the new earth has no sea. 
In this respect, the new earth stands in sharp contrast to this present earth, which Peter has just reminded us in his Panorama of the Ages that twice before in history was covered by a universal sea. The original earth was compacted out of water and stood amidst the waters. And then that original world, being overflowed with water, perished. Water to this world has been used both as an implement of blessing and of judgment. But in the new heaven and the new earth, there is to be no great reservoirs of this substance. Rather, we're told, and he showed me a pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. The water needs of the new earth are to be met by the overflowing stream of the water of life that proceeds directly from God himself. Now, after this stirring panorama that touches on so many aspects of God's plan of the ages, the Apostle Peter closes with this exhortation. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. This exhortation is directed to Christians of this age, especially to us that are living today as we see Peter's prophecy of the last days being fulfilled we are definitely told that we are to look for such things. The promise of the Lord's coming to catch his church out of this world is a part of our expectation, and it is to comfort us as we see Satan's world political and religious system daily gaining strength all around us. When we see these present world preparations for the opening part of the day of the Lord, we're to rejoice in the thought that the promise of his coming is soon to be kept. But this expectation is not a prophecy, and it's uh, not a prophecy intended to produce lethargy in which we sit back, fold our hands, and simply wait for the promise to be fulfilled. We are to be diligent in going about the Lord's business, and the Lord's business is the spreading of the gospel message and the teaching of the word of God. Remember, the reason for the Lord's long delay in keeping his promise is that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. As we see the day of the Lord approaching, we are to be even more industrious in carrying out our Lord's great commission. Even though he is not willing that any should perish, the sad thing is that millions of those for whom he died will perish. This is not because that it's the Lord's will that they go their own way, but rather it's because it's their will to remain in their sins. The Lord provided a salvation that is available as a free gift to all, but he will not force anyone to accept it. When one does perish, it's because of that one's own will, not the Lord's will. We are to be diligent that we may be found of him at his coming in peace without spot and blameless. We are to live in constant fellowship with the Lord as we go about his business in this world. And this produces a peace within the heart of the believer that the world can never know. The Lord said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That's found in John chapter 14 and verse 27. As we live daily in obedience to his word, we do look for such things, and we are in peace because we know that his shed blood has made us without spot and blameless in God's sight. To him be glory both now and forever. 
Amen. I see that once again my time is almost gone. We'll conclude this study of God's panorama of the ages on our next broadcast. Thank you. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's so good to visit with you by radio with another message from God's Holy Word. Today we'll conclude our study of God's panorama of the ages. To open this final message of the series, let me read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. In response to the prophesied mocking question of the last day scoffers, where is the promise of his, the Lord Jesus Christ's, coming, the Apostle Peter has first directed our attention to the fact of the supernatural creation. Then he reminds us of God's judgment of the great flood at the time of Noah. Next, the Apostle directed his attention to this present world. He assures Christians and last day scoffers alike that, the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. He tells us that the reason that our Lord delays his coming is that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But we are assured that the delay in fulfilling the promise has in no way lessened the surety of its being fulfilled. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Peter further tells us that when the day of the Lord has run its course and the time has come for God's great white throne judgment of ungodly men, then God's purpose for this present earth and its atmospheric heaven will be completed. Therefore the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. But the great expectation of God's people is the eternal day of God where we're to live forever in the presence of God himself. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. After pointing out that the destiny and the great expectation of God's people is the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, Peter has given us an exhortation. He writes, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. Even as we see the sun sinking low on this day of grace, and we know that the darkness of the great tribulation that's to open the day of the Lord is soon to settle over the earth, we are to be diligent about the Lord's business. But when he comes, we are to be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. The Lord himself gives peace to those that are his, and we are to simply rest in the thought that he is in control of all things, and that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. We are to separate ourselves from the materialism and the wickedness of this world system, 
And when we do fail in some way, we are to confess our sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Only by walking daily in the power of the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within us can we be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. And then in verse 15, the apostle writes, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. The opening clause of this verse is Peter's closing answer to the last-day scoffers who will ask, Where is the promise of his coming? He has previously told them, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And now he says, And the long-suffering of our Lord, consider it salvation. Peter says that we can know that God's patience and long-suffering with mankind throughout all the centuries of human history have always been with a view toward the salvation of any who will turn to him, confessing their sin and believing the message of his grace. It's not too late, even for those last-day scoffers, if they will simply turn to him in faith, saying, Lord Jesus, I believe. Forgive my sins and save me by thy grace. I put my trust in thee. And then Peter adds, Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. I think that many have missed the significance of these words given to us by the Holy Spirit of God through the testimony of the Apostle Peter. I think that we have here not only the divine seal of authority placed on all the Pauline epistles, but we also have an authentication of the Pauline authorship of the epistle to the Hebrews. There seems to be very little doubt that a specific writing of Paul is in view in verse 15, even though verse 16 goes on to speak of all of Paul's epistles. And there does not seem to be any writing that could be in view other than the epistle to the Hebrews. The opening verse of Peter's first epistle, that's 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, contains an address to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The word translated strangers actually means aliens, and it seems to most likely refer to Jewish Christians who are dispersed among the Gentiles. In fact, Dr. Kenneth Wiest, the Greek scholar, has rendered this clause to those who have settled down alongside a pagan population sown as a seed throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So the first epistle of Peter seems to be addressed to Jewish Christians in dispersion. Now, in the second epistle of Peter, in chapter 3 and verse 1, we find these words. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. It seems that Peter's second epistle is addressed to the same direct recipients as his first epistle, that is, Jewish Christians in dispersion. Now, all of Paul's epistles, other than the epistle to the Hebrews, are addressed to Gentile churches and Gentile Christians. It definitely seems that Peter had the epistle to the Hebrews in view here because that epistle does deal with some of the very same material that Peter has just discussed. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29, we find this supporting testimony. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, 
yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of the things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. There's little doubt that the author of the book of Hebrews was also referring to the destruction of this present heaven and earth by fire and to the creation of the new heaven and the new earth as the eternal dwelling place of God's people when he penned these words. And Peter ascribes the words to the Apostle Paul. In verse 16, the Apostle Peter goes on to say that in the special letter to the Hebrews, as also in all his epistles, Paul had definitely spoken of these things. Then he adds that in these letters there are some things hard to be understood which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or wrestle, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Notice that in these words Peter testifies to the fact that at the time this second epistle was written, Paul's letters were acknowledged by all believers to be the very word of God, infallible and completely authoritative. Paul had very likely already gone on to be with the Lord at the time that Peter penned these words. His epistles were all in circulation, and Peter acknowledges full authority to these books, and he sets them on a plane of reference equal to the Old Testament when he includes them in the designation Scripture. That word was known by all Christians to refer to the sacred writings that they acknowledged to be the very word of Jehovah God himself. There are many passages, particularly in the book of Hebrews, that have caused untold distress to those who have but a feeble knowledge of the remainder of God's word and who therefore have no real understanding of God's great plan of the ages. Most definitely, it is particularly the passages of the book of Hebrews with which these unlearned and unstable ones do rest as they do also the other scriptures to their own destruction. Such passages as Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 8 and Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 through 31 have led to the destruction of the confidence and much of the testimony of literally thousands of Christians who truly know the Lord but who have let a shallow, out-of-context interpretation of these passages destroy their confidence in the Lord's ability to keep them unto himself. These passages have no reflection at all on the eternal security of the believer, yet Satan has used unscriptural interpretations to bring about the destruction of the confident Christian walk to many. By the way, the word destruction here is not equivalent to the word eternal condemnation. So in his final exhortation to his beloved Christian brethren, just before his eyes were closed in death, and his spirit went to be with the Lord, the apostle Peter writes these words, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Beloved, these are our instructions as we go about the Lord's work in these closing days of this age of grace. Let me close this study of Second Peter chapter 3 with the benediction that closed Peter's earthly testimony. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Our time is gone for today, but we'll return on the next broadcast with another study from God's holy word. Until our next broadcast, this is Wayne Carver declaring God's basic message to you. The Bible stands. I would love
program is sponsored by the Bible Stands Radio Broadcast, Post Office Box 690008, San Antonio, Texas, 78269.